Hello world, welcome to the High Paying Bastards. We are your hosts, Ian and Ari. Here, we will discuss anything related to video game culture, so please, take a seat and join us. We are alive and ready to go. Uh, well, I don't know why. Uh, am I a Howard Stern or something? <laughs> it's okay. We all channel, you know, Howard Stern every once in a while. Ian, how are you doing? I'm good, Ari. How you doing, man? I'm doing good too, man. Ready to start our fourth episode. Dude, I made a red velvet cake the other day. Dude, I'm so full. It was so good. I just <laughs> want to throw that out there. You're so festive, man. You're celebrating our fourth episode. That's amazing. You didn't share that cake, of course. No, but... of course not. Why would I? <laughs> you know, you could just, you know where I am. You could deliver it, you know, not that I'm complaining. Actually, I am, but still. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we're, we're feeling festive, but Xbox might not be feeling. Well, I guess Xbox is kind of feeling festive as well because they're putting out some Game Pass for free. If you watch some ads, like yep. we don't have more of those, you know? So you have to be a good little consumer and get that ad and then get on a good list for Xbox and then they'll give you some Game Pass. Is that? I think this is a, a speculation though, right? It's not like a feature or anything that is already running. But yeah, it's speculation for sure. Yeah. They, on the article that by written by the Windows Central, it did have like, you know, people confirmed that when they were running through the uh, Game Pass codes, they did find a feature pertaining to that kind of service, which was, Kind of scary to know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that. So, like, they do something similar with Twitch. With Twitch, you can earn. Well, you can't anymore, but you used to earn bits by watching ads, and bits you could use to donate to streamers. And bits were like uh, exchange rate equivalent. They were like a cent, like a penny, or something like that, right? So, this isn't like a kind of. This isn't anything new, really, right? But I, it's just, it's such a weird, like, how would you do it? You know what I mean? That is my question. Yeah, I think if they were planning on doing it, I would assume that they would do a pricing tier where a Game Pass by watching ad is like free and then Game Pass while paying for it is at a certain price above and you're not, you don't have to watch the ad similar to like Hulu's uh pricing structure as well but that also begs the question then right then they're gonna just increase the price for the regular game pass and then it'll be incentivizing us to pay more and more money for the same service that we're getting right now yeah that and also i mean the other thing too though is okay so how would the ad one work like are you going to just start injecting ads in the middle of games or is it just a banner that's going to be there while you're looking for a game well, to be fair uh, to kind of confirm as well, this is not a current free feature, but it, this is like a speculation. And in my opinion, when it comes to Microsoft and uh, Xbox speculation, they always send out the worst kind of communication on what's actually happening. So you'll have CFO and CEO conflicting mm-hmm. their different idea on like, you know, for example, that news where they were saying, should the Game Pass be in other platforms as well or not? And these two high-level executives are contradicting one another. So... Right now, this is not an actual feature we're talking about, but this is a speculation, and they have found some codes pertaining to it in the Game Pass's codes. But the way I'm kind of understanding it is that you play your free Game Pass for like 15 minutes, like, you know, you're playing your smaller game or a big game, whatever, and if you're enjoying the Game Pass, 
uh, at the free level, you watch an ad and continue using it. And later on, if you really like the game pass and the services it's providing, you'll switch towards the priced mechanism, you priced tier, and then pay for that instead. It's a good way, in my opinion, to get people into understanding if a Game Pass is worth it or not, which is the big problem that they have. Is People don't know if this thing, Game Pass, like that thing with Movie Pass, is worth getting money or not. Well, they already kind of forced you into getting Game Pass. That's that's the problem with, with me, right? So, and PlayStation did this too. So you used to be able to just get Xbox Gold, which that was just so you could play online. That's all it was. Game Pass used to be its own separate entity. And then what they did was they combined the two together and they made it so getting just Xbox Gold was more than than getting Xbox Gold with Game Pass mm-hmm. until they eventually just phased out Xbox Gold and now it's just Xbox Game Pass and Gold or whatever it is, right? So you can't even... I don't even think you can get just a regular Xbox Gold anymore. You have to get it with the Game Pass bundle. Um, and Sony's kind of doing the same thing. And I hate that Microsoft forced you to do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm still not in a position where I have to have a Game Pass because I think Microsoft is, for my benefit, they are trying to combine the platform of PC and Xbox in the same kind of category. For example, like if there's a Xbox exclusive game that's coming out, then more than likely it'll be on PC. And on PC, I don't need a Game Pass to play these games. I just buy it in the Steam or like in the Microsoft game platform. I have never really done a math whether a Game Pass is worth it for me or not. So like this is a little bit foreign news on my end and I don't have PS or anything like that that I play with. So it's kind of hard for me to understand like, you know, why a Game Pass pricing would be beneficial or not. But I can understand the frustration with these kind of things coming up, you know, where uh, like you don't really know the mathematical value of whether you're getting the best benefit or not with these Game Passes or PlayStation Plus or whatever. Yeah, I, I've said this before to you, Ari. I don't I don't like it. Um, again, it, it just goes back to you, the consumer not owning the property and just renting it. So yeah. I don't I don't care for it at all. That's That's my take on it. I mean, I understand like the the good benefits of it and stuff, but I just I don't like it. Well, you're an old school kind of guy. You you would rather own that CD and just blow on a cartridge kind of guy. Well, I'm also a lazy fuck too, you know. And I just would rather push a button and switch to my game rather than having to stand up and put a new one in. So, I mean, I trust me, like I like electronically owning stuff because it makes it a lot easier to just switch between games and shit. Especially because, like, all sometimes I will flip flop and I will switch games rapid fire. Um, so having to stand up and and swap discs like that constantly is a pain in the ass, and I hate that. But I, I like owning the material myself. Yeah. Well, we'll see where this thing goes. It's an interesting topic from like pricing and culture perspective. Hopefully right now it's just kind of a hearsays and a little bit of them testing the water out and hopefully it has the reaction that people can give it. It's like, this is not really a good idea. But then I can also see the benefit of like, you know, using an ad version to dip my toe in and see whether a game pass is worth it or not. But yeah, we'll see where it leads, right? Um, we can move on to the next news. So one of the news we were also looking at was that on the day before, uh, Game has had about at least 50% have already been refunded and delisted from the Steam sales. So, you know, 
<laughs> of all the launches that has happened and me in the last episode wanting to defend this game, you know, I have to eat a lot of my words <laughs> right now for breakfast, basically. Did you go through the those the posts there that showed like all the assets where they got them from and stuff? Did you go through all that stuff? I did, Ian, but to me, that's not like the biggest of the crime that has happened with this game. Because like, you know, when you're trying to make an advertisement to sell it to uh, investors and stuff, I can see them using the already assets that are developed and pay for it. But you're right in that them lying about it is kind of very sketchy. And that's the problem that they've highlighted on their own self-assessment is that they have not been very good in the marketing and the communication department. And that's a uh, that's a big flaw to acknowledge on their end. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say this with it. I mean, we've talked about this now for a, you know a good portion of the other podcast. Uh, other episode in this one i I don't want to get like too much into it but when they first showed it it looked really good and it's just unfortunate to see what's happened with it um that i mean that's really all i can say about it you know what i mean uh sales showing uh refunds of the day before Two hundred thousand units sold ninety one thousand refunded after the second day (laughs) like yeah If you go on Steam and look at their reviews down, all the negative reviews have like refunded, refunded, refunded kind of label. It's it's disheartening to see it, man. And it, you know, yeah, there there might have been potential, but not the capability to pull this off. And it's unfortunate these developers, you know, if they had to go and find a new job now, they have to put this game on their resume that they worked on. Uh, it'll be kind of hard to kind of convince another employer to take a chance on them, but that's the uh, that's the kind of a problem about it. Uh, you know, hopefully they all of those developers who did work on it find their feedback, and maybe they won't stop making games and try it again. Definitely, and I don't want them to give up on their dreams based upon this absolutely horrible experience. Uh, I mean, the devs can just not say they worked on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like the 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 devs that did work on it, you know, they, that tried, they deserve props for trying to do what they could with what they had, which, I mean, they didn't get a whole lot. You know what I mean? I think um, the biggest issue is the marketing um, and how the the two owners there, the, they're the main guys of Fnatic, the two brothers, just how they marketed the game was not what it was cut out to be. You know what I mean? Agreed. And I think they acknowledge that as well. This is where their biggest flaw and their mistake lied on how these marketings were setting expectations about their ability to deliver. So good lessons learned. Uh, hopefully people who wanted a refund got their refund and you know nobody lost too much other than the developers who lost a lot of time in this one. And the thing about the resume, Ian, is that if they have spent about a year or so working on a game and it flops as bad as this, they're going to have to explain a gap year on their resume. <laughs> <of> the code. <laughs> so, right. so what are we doing about this the, from this uh, year to this year? They're like, oh, I was, you know, taking a trip around Barcelona or something, discovering myself. They're going to have to yeah. pretend that one, man. I mean, that, that's probably a better answer than saying that you worked on the day before. But I mean, that's that's just me. Oh, man, you have to get a tattoo saying you worked up the day before. <laughs> uh, well, good luck to them, you know, hopefully, like, you know, hopefully there is still some stomach for MMORPG for a zombie game that can be delivered by a much more capable people. 
No, there is. There, I mean, there's still people that, that want something like it. They want something a little bit more than just like Daisy, you know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's still people that want it. Um, let's just move. Let's move on from this one. Just because like, we talked about it a lot. It's just it breaks my heart, <laughs> you know? Um, we got some Kojima stuff, though. You want to talk about Kojima's genius and, and brilliance? Mad. I always feel like this guy is kind of overhyped. I understand you like him a lot. I feel like this guy just seems like a normal game developer. Hold, people hold, have this cult of personality about. Hold hold on a second, okay? Yeah. While I do enjoy Kojima's games, um, they are interesting. Kojima himself is... How do I put this nicely? He's a... He's a little bit from what I have heard is he's a little bit of a diva. Um, he's, he's an interesting individual. So I, uh, a lot of people were reanalyzing that trailer for OD and one person has stated that in the trailer, in certain points of the trailer, you can see the letters you can see letters in one of the characters' mouths, and it spells out Atami, which Atami is a city in Japan, and it's located in the Shizuka prefecture, and I butchered that, and I apologize, um, which that can be translated into quiet or silent hill. Um, well, the original game Silent Hill was kind of based around that area wasn't it i mean that's why that's where the name actually did come from from the suzuka prefect prefecture although i'll say this i think one of the Eurogamer, which is a much more legitimate you know <laughs> video game article and review site they did do this but you need to have like a 4k trailer that they posted you need to look in that one frame by frame and then apparently there are letters there there's there are yeah but I'll say this. I don't understand why he's trying to sell a Silent Hill game. You ready for the tinfoil? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So um, there are letters. You can clearly see the A at the 37 second mark in the trailer. I went through and I looked at it and I looked at it frame by frame. Uh, some of the other one, other letters are kind of harder to make out. Um, I probably didn't have a 4K trailer pulled up or something, but there is something in the mouth. Now, Kojima had worked on, I don't know if you remember this or not, um, it was a PlayStation demo exclusive PT. Yep, literally called PlayStation Teaser, right? Well, that was supposedly a demo for Silent Hill, and it was a Silent Hill that Kojima was going to make, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know the story. I, I know the story about that one. You're right. I mean, that's just kind, of, that's kind of where it comes from, right? Now, the reason why I, I bring this up is Koji this isn't new for Kojima, okay? Kojima is definitely an interesting individual. Did you know that he wanted to make a game amid the smell of blood? Right? That sounds fucking nuts, right? Yeah, I mean, he has done a lot of interesting gameplay, even just from like how you play the game from like Metal Gear Solid, where like and you have to take out your controller or whatever. And he has done some interesting, his gameplay, that's what I'm saying is like his gameplay is, in my opinion, the most interesting of all the developers out there. Like the way he uh, wants you to play the game and experience in different areas of the game. And I'll admit to it that, you know, it might be a Silent Hill trailer. And in fact, OD could turn out become a Silent Hill 
game, but they're already making a Silent Hill remake from different, you know, developers and stuff. Yeah, so, Konami, I think. Yeah, so I don't understand why there's like, you know, he it's like he's forcing a Silent Hill uh, Easter egg rather than Konami asking him to make a Silent Hill game, you know? Like, he's like, I'm going to force myself into this Silent Hill world. Well, some people are saying that it could be interpreted as Kojima saying, this is my interpretation of Silent Hill. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an actual Silent Hill game, but this is how Kojima would interpret like a Silent Hill type game, right? He could just say that then, you know? It, it's dude, or, It's Kojima. Like Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 1, like the, the, the twists and the, the shit doesn't make any sense half the time, dude. I mean, Death Stranding still, I'm like, I'm, I don't know what the hell I played still. <laughs> but going back to the blood smell thing, uh, blood smell from a disc like that that's a legitimate thing back when he made the game snatcher he wanted to coat the floppy disc in a special kind of paint that would heat up and you would smell blood from the game Man, this guy is such a door <laughs> he is definitely an interesting individual he wants to bring like different spectrums to gaming. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I mean, he has pushed boundaries and we kind of need someone to do that. Or else we're just stuck with the same old Far Cry, you know, Far Cry 7 and 8. I'm not going to take that as an insult or anything, uh, <laughs> Ian. But, you know, you're right. There needs to be somebody who's eccentric enough to push the what the games can be. And I love that about him. I think his strength is literally how you play his game. His yeah. weakness, in my opinion, is uh, how he tells the story. Yeah. Like, he has some of the cringiest dialogue and etc. Which kind of also adds on to another article I wanted to go about with Kojima is that he is working with the A24. According to Kojima Productions, he'll be working with A24, a kind of a known studio about, you know, art house movies. And he wants to work with them to make a Death Stranding movie. And yeah. Kojima wants to make a Death Stranding movie. He cannot be somebody who writes them. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. can only you can only bear that game, the story of that game, if you're playing that game. Like if I'm watching it on, you say like a gameplay, I cannot like the story. You kind of like you can see how kind of a weak writing it is. Like the dialogues are so so cringy. Like there's no way a human being communicates like that. But it's also his kind of a magic about him too. And I understand that. Like that's his kind of a flair, you know, using dialogue. That one dialogue that uh that scientist from Metal Gear Solid said, you know, it's like, Snake, what do you fight for? What do I fight for? Like that dialogue, when I heard that first time, I was like, geez, man, I know what he's trying to do, but uh, it's just like, he cannot be the one writing that movie. He needs to let somebody else kind of write it. And then he needs to have certain sections that he can own as a, oh, this is the line we have to use. Otherwise, it's not a Kojima. It's just a normal movie. Yeah, it's that's part of the, the Kojima charm. Um, uh, what do you think other than Dead Stranding? Like, would you, like you played the Dead Stranding movie. Uh, sorry. Ian, you played the uh, Dead Stranding game. What yeah. do you think about a movie adaptation of that franchise? It's not going to make any fucking sense at first. Even the game itself, like you're, you don't even really know what the fuck you're doing for the first half of the game, right? So the whole beginning of that movie, if he's doing it, 
you're not going to know what the fuck is going on for at least the first half of the movie. You're going to be clueless, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, that's why like, he needs a good writer and a director to help him out with it. Like, it's a good thing, though. He has really good connection, apparently, all around Hollywood. Like, Guillermo del Toro, like, Mads Mikkelsen, even Jordan Peele. All these people, yeah. they have, like, high respect for him and they want to collaborate with him. And he has access to these good talents to kind of help him out on that end. But he needs to be kind of careful because like a video game, like his video game being turned into a movie, I bet is like one of the hardest adaptation you can do. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so my thing with Kojima, right, is I, he's definitely like kind of like the, the beautiful mind, right? But I feel like he needs someone to rein him in a bit. Um, that was kind of the good thing when he was working at Konami uh, with the Metal Gear Solid series was Konami was there to rein him in a bit and then we get death stranding when he has his own studio you know where he's got kind of full creativity and no one there to kind of rein him in and you're just kind of left scratching your head going what the fuck just happened exactly but you're also right you know i'm trying to come towards your kind of appreciation of uh, kojima as well like you know he is somebody who wants to push how a game is played and we need people like him in the industry like you cannot have Far Cry Seven. You're right. Even though I love Far Cry series, you don't want it to be repetitive. Like Death Set Stranding has one of the most noble idea about how you want to play multiplayer in a sense that you are playing a multiplayer game in order to help other people with like you know route and ladder placements, item placements, and stuff like that. You're collaborating in a sense to help your fellow players out rather than your regular multiplayer where you're just shooting the shit out of each other. You know, it, yeah. that's that. I found that to be like, you know, the beautiful mind kind of things. And then like, oh, he's thinking in a much more novel manner about what this game can be. And once like, that's a really hard thing to convey. And he did that with Death Stranding. And people who stuck around with that game, you know, I'm sure they found the reward for sticking around with that game and playing it because of those things. And yeah, we'll see how his movie adaptation go. It's not an easy thing to, first of all, adapt a video game into a movie. And it's going to be even harder to do a Kojima production into a movie. But I'm happy to see where it leads. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely will check it out for sure. I mean, I enjoyed Death Stranding. I played played it, beat it. I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, it's a Kojima game, you know. And if it, it's the most Kojima game <laughs> out there right now, you know. Um, but it, it, like you said, it it's a new way to play multiplayer. And you help all these people. But yet it still knows how to make you feel alone at the same time, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's some like, you know, really good light motifs and really good uh kind of like how a game makes you feel. That's how that's why I like a game story more than I like the gameplay itself. And we'll talk about it when we go towards the uh, avatar review we'll do later on. But when you watch or like when you go through like kojima's video game you remember that plot for a long long time down the road unlike a lot of games that you play and you just kind of forget in the next few months whatever happened in that game yeah i'm sure you can recall some of the things that happened in death stranding even if they were confusing many people still recall you know metal gear solid 2's like story event and stuff like that because they had such a strong emotional connection to it in a manner whether in a joking manner, in a laughing manner, like I do, or like in a more serious manner. Like he will make a story, gameplay story that you can remember for a long time. And that, in my opinion, is quite artistic. But with that being said, this guy is still a dork, like a real 
real nerd dork. Like, you know, he wants to hang around with the cool actors, you know, jackets and cigarettes. He wants to beat his game. He's a dork and I have no respect for dork. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Ari. Come man, you're killing me. I hate nerds. They've ruined everything. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a podcast one day about just me complaining about nerd one, nerd two, nerd three, like you know, Mark Zuckerberg, these people who have just ruined our modern day experience of life completely. Like, like, but that's that's not a hearsay. That's a that's a uh, behind the scene kind of podcast one day. <laughs> that's kinda of off tangent, sorry. But uh we can work on thoughts. our next year. Yeah, I don't know, I just uh random bad babble babbles and stuff like that we can move on to other uh news now um e3 i yes. think that's a pretty big one it is a very big one the king is dead you know e3 one of the most central part of video game culture for quite a bit of long time it's now gone yeah finally closing their doors and didn't i say that like just in the last podcast too how the game awards is kind of turning into e3 yes yeah yes you did i think but i've always appreciated like e3 as a actual event that i want to attend because back in the day when e3 was coming out the video game industry was still a little bit more niche even though it was big it was like you know people were not as central to the popular culture as it is right now and people were finding a lot of memories and friendships and networks and stuff like that using e3 as it happens in all the trade shows and uh, I've always wanted to go there one day, but now it's, uh, well, it's completely impossible because it's not there anymore. Yeah, it was a, it was one thing that, like, I always wanted to go to when I was younger. Because um, you always, you read about it in magazines and stuff, magazine lull. Um, but, like, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'll never have the chance now, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so... It's unfortunate to hear because that you used to always look forward to E3, but I mean, with things like kind of moving online and a lot of people are just doing their own award shows and their own showcases and stuff like that, like it, it doesn't really make sense for E3 to really still be around. Yeah, it feels like, you know, one of those friends that you just stop talking to for a while and then you don't know. And then when they are gone, you don't even remember them and then suddenly one day you kind of remember them <laughs> it's too late now for e3 uh, it's yeah. unfortunate man i'll be honest there's some good moments from e3 i remember i remember when that connect showing happened in e3 for the first time and i was looking at it's like this is the future of video game right here man i was like so pumped up with the project scorpion and stuff like that i was like wow this is amazing i this will change everything spoiler alert it did not but <laughs> It is like, you know, watching those kind of things, like not just like new games, but like new gaming experiences and stuff like that. Equipment. Exactly. When VR was just kind of becoming an experimental and prototype and stuff like that. There are a lot of uh, like trailers coming out. And in my opinion, one of the very less appreciated things we do in culture are like trade shows. Like I've done a trade show for, uh, I've gone to a trade show for, of food companies and like wholesalers and stuff when I was doing another career. Uh, and that one, like, even if it's like a boring stuff, like, you know, wholesale food, you still always meet people who are really passionate about that industry in at the trade shows. Yeah. You meet so many like cool people. You make really good network out of those people. And those network, they last for a long, long time. But nowadays, of course, with the internet, you don't really 
need a trade shows or something like that. But I'm kind of also surprised to notice that E3 could not adapt to the modern kind of situation either. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of the people that kind of put E3 on were probably just a lot of the old heads, you know what I mean, of the the video game industry. Um, So for those that don't know as well, I just saw this. uh, E3 first... Uh, its first event, which was in 1995. So, that's a long fucking running. Yeah. I mean, so is World's Fair, but nobody's putting that out, you know? World's Fair still happens now. No. But it- yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. I guess uh, Jeff Keighley, he wasn't a former E3 collaborator for some of those years and stuff. So, but, I mean, I think with place, when, you know, Sony first decided to pull out I think it was them first, and then I think it was Nintendo pulled out like the following year, yeah. and then you know Microsoft was just like fuck it, threw in the towel as well. So, I mean, when you have those big three kind of pull out of your your gaming, you know, uh, like their announcement and stuff are not being done in the internet. So, what's the point of having E three, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it costs them money to go and and have booths set up for all that shit. So now, uh, I mean, how much is a booth going to cost a Sony and a Microsoft? You know, it's not like it's a big, you know. I mean, yeah, like, for that for them, yeah, it's it's puddles in the in the ocean for sure, yeah. Uh, or yeah, ripples in the ocean. There we go. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> puddles in the ocean. Yeah, puddles in the ocean. <laughs> we got a poet, Ian, right here. Yeah. My brain's fucking fried. Don't worry about me. No worries. Yeah, well, you know, it's too bad. Maybe they might do a comeback or something. I remember, uh, like, in those San Diego Comic Cons, uh, where, like, all those Marvel and stuff get premiered. Back in the day, those things used to be really, really small, like, in a niche kind of uh, hobby, people going in there. Suddenly, this one movie called Twilight comes out, (laughs) and it suddenly becomes one of the... And that's where, like, Twilight trailers were premiering at the San Diego Comic Con. And there's like long line of people waiting for that trailer. And suddenly after that is when San Diego Comic Con became a big, big venue for all the movies to kind of premiere. But because of Twilight, like I, that's why I, I always find it weird when nerds complain about Twilight. That thing saved San Diego Comic Con, dude. <laughs> and it made it as big as it is like, you know, during the Marvel years. And after that, like in you know, a San Diego Comic Con, didn't become like a small event. It was like a really big event after the Twilight. And I wish E3 had similar in the most recent day. But you know, if everybody's pulling out, then you know who's gonna like and want to you know do it for the E3 where nobody else is kind of paying attention. So it's kind of unfortunate. But you know, it'd have been nice to kind of go to an E3 event at least once. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. You know, especially again seeing it as a kid and stuff. And like, oh man, seeing all like the cool shit that they reveal, that's, I mean, not going to happen anymore, but oh well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on then. Uh, Let's move on to much more interesting topic, legal battles between corporation. Uh, Yeah. Corporation and corporation violence here. Yeah. So recently we got this, uh, it's from the News Observer, but uh, it was an article uh, summarizing the battle between Epic Games and Apple and Google. Now, there are like separate losses happening between Epic Games and Apple and Epic Games and Google, but they're both pertaining to the similar effect of how these application marketplaces like Apple 
apps and Google's Google Play, how these two platforms have a complete monopoly over how the apps have to interact with their consumers. So in order to highlight that monopoly, what Epic Games did was that they created this Project Liberty where they started selling their V-Bucks directly to the consumers through the app. Now, Apple and Google Play, what they have kind of asked, not asked, but like signed with the contract with the app developer is that, listen, if you're going to sell anything on our platform, it has to go through our payment system. And you have to pay 30 to 40% commission on those payments that you do, whether it's microtransaction, V-Bucks, or any kind of service that you do. Even say like if you have a, what is good? like a dating app, like a Tinder or something. And then if you have a subscription based on that end, it has to go through the Apple system. And then Apple gets 30 to 40% of that money that passes through the transaction. Now that's a big industry on their end. It's a big money maker. So when this Project Liberty started happening, there was definitely going to be a battle. It was like a bait that was being laid between these company. And suddenly it went to the judge as an antitrust lawsuit, whereby the lawsuit between the Epic Games and Apple, Apple was favored on that lawsuit and it's being appealed by Epic Games. But on the Google end, it was the different decision. It was Epic yep. Games were ruled in the favor saying that, yes, Google was behaving like a discriminatory monopoly. So the Google but, one also was, um, wasn't that one won by a jury as well? Exactly, yeah. That one was won by jury too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a little bit difference uh, with, um, like, the outcomes of the two. Like you said, Apple, they they kind of won theirs where Google kind of lost theirs. Yeah. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about this, Ari? I think these are basically, like, even if, I mean, you and I both do not enjoy Epic Games uh, application. <laughs> Neither of us do, right? But you should be allowed to have a lot more say on how you do transactions on your platform. Like, this is not about just Epic Games, but if you're a small app developer and there's a company that takes 40% of your every transaction, your revenue, that I feel like is a really, really high price in my opinion. And if you're, look, if you're looking to buy an app from, if you have an iPhone, there's only one place you can buy an app. While if you're buying it from Android, there are multiple, but like Google often does a very kind of a cartel-like behavior where like they try to discourage you from buying application from another application market like Samsung or something like that. And they try to get more from you, like, you know, how they sign contracts with app developers. So in my opinion, Google is behaving more predatorially because it takes you away from the other uh, competitors as well. While Apple, there's just no other competitor on Apple. They just don't allow anybody to compete with them. And Anything that doesn't have a competition is liable for a lot of issues down the road. Yeah, um, I, I will agree with you there on that. Um, like the one thing that I don't like is just because, like, you know, Epic. We we see it with Epic Games on um, like PC and stuff, whether Epic Launcher or if there's just like an Epic game that you want to play and you can't get it on Steam, you have to use their launcher and their website or whatever and it fucking just sucks right it's not a good launcher and it hasn't been for from my understanding you know since it released so are they going to actually like make a decent app launcher for phones and stuff while they throw their video game launcher to the side or 
I'm going to say no, because I don't, <laughs> I don't like the launcher. So I don't think they will ever like, I'm just kidding on that end, but <laughs> I, I don't have faith in Epic games. Like I don't like using their. I had to use their platform for dead Island. And then the moment I finished that game, I just deleted yeah. it immediately. Exactly. Here's what I'll say, right? If they are trying to bust monopoly of application marketplace, then they are kind of shooting themselves on their own knee too. Cause they also have kind of a monopolistic behavior when it comes to their Unreal game engine that can only be downloaded from their platform or games like Dead Island that can only be downloaded from their platform and they can take like a certain amount of percentage from each sale as well. So they have yeah. their, and they could also have a monopoly where like, you know, games that are made in game engines like Unity or game engines that are not their own, like a, uh, a game engine that is like, you know, consumer friendly as in like Unreal and Unity that you can use to make your own games, then they can have a scenario where they do not allow games that use their competitor's game engine on their platform either. Like they're kind of shooting themselves on the foot because that takes away their ability to manipulate their own platform and how they interact with games on their platform as well. So it's kind of a weird scenario where like they're fighting against a monopoly while not realizing that they have the potential to become their own monopoly too so like how i see it as basically like epic games is just the spoiled little kid that didn't think of it first and is crying and whining to mom that they're making money but i'm not you know yeah but that little bastard is not wrong and that's the thing too like that bastard is kind of helping smaller app developer on that area where they don't have the ability to market it in anywhere other than Apple when they make an app or something like that. When Microsoft was sued because their operating system would not allow a competitor's browser, they were targeted by the monopoly as well, and they had to relinquish that control. Now, you, if you have a Windows, you can install Google Chrome, you can install Opera or whatever browser you need to use. Otherwise, in the back in the day, before that antitrust lawsuit, Microsoft would only allow you to use Internet Internet Explorer. And now imagine the world right now where you can only use Internet Explorer or Edge or whatever the fucking thing they want to call it. Just that as your browser when you're using a PC. I'll get back to you in 10 years when the page finally loads. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath on it on that end. But but like you know, we'll, I I love it anytime there's a lawsuit against a monopolistic behavior. I think that's yeah. thing in my opinion. I don't like the fact that Epic Games. Well, I don't like Epic Games that much at all, and their platform, in my opinion, is kind of unnecessary for me. For the most of the things I play, and it's an inconvenient every time I have to install it if I want to play some game that comes out just on Epic Games or something like that. I prefer it's, Steam myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's disingenuous to think that Epic Games is doing this for the greater good. <laughs> yeah. You exactly. know what I mean? Exactly. Like, yeah. It's they're that, not that whole lawsuit. The article, if you look at, listen to what their lawyer had to say, it sounds like, oh, we're fighting for the little guy. We're the good guys here, we're standing up for people and everybody who has billions of dollars in revenue. <laughs> your common man, right there. Like I, like it feels like a marketing technique. Like this whole lawsuit was created as a bait and switch. They created this scenario of Project Liberty or whatever they are calling it because they wanted to create a civil lawsuit case for antitrust uh, scenarios. They wanted this lawsuit to go down. That's why they made this whole thing. And plus they're doing it by using V-Bucks and microtransactions and stuff. That alone is like, you know, kind of like, it's kind of like a 
evil that you know kind of scenario or like, I don't like why you're suing it, but I have to at least appreciate it that it is being filed. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a good thing, but again, it's it's disingenuous to sit here and say that Epic Games is doing it for a good reason, because you know they fucking aren't. (laughs) No, none of these corporations ever do. I mean, that's their nature, and I'm not going to debate on, like, the nature of a corporation, which, in my opinion, is not a human being, you know? Um, Moving on to platforms, you know, you see this GTA San Andreas, GTA 3, and Definitive Edition coming out on Netflix. Before you say anything, I'll say this. <laughs> They're finally coming out in a platform that deserves that graphics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty on par. Do you know, okay, so are they releasing the remasters that they did? Yeah, it's the definitive versions. It's a uh, little bit even kind of a lower graphical settings than uh, definitive version. But when you play it on a phone, you're like, okay, this is where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> not in my PC that has like, you know, 3080 or 4080 graphics like GPU where like, and that's not where this game belongs. This game belongs in this Netflix <laughs> platform. And what I've heard from this is that the game is quite intensive. So if you do not have the right operating system, it could run your battery out, but you can use Bluetooth control to play it. But even bigger than that, in my opinion, is the Netflix becoming a gaming platform. But it's not, when I try to play a game in it, it's not like what you think. You can't just play games on the Netflix itself. What happens is that you click a game on Netflix on your phone, it will take you to an Apple page that is for Netflix subscribers, and you can get that game for free. If you try to buy that game on its own on Apple, it's like $19 or something. Oh, so it's not, they're not actually like hosting it or anything like that. They're just basically giving you like a, a free QR code or some shit to go get the game. It, it, well, it'll take it directly to that Apple page where yeah. that game is located. And if you are doing it from your Netflix app where you're already logged in, you'll be able to get it for free. Uh, you don't have to pay anything extra to it, and you can just kind of play that game. It has some good games. Like, there's a game called Into the Breach that is quite popular. People enjoy that one. It is a good place for mobile platform games because you don't, you're not going to get hounded by advertisements all the time. Like, you know, it's <laughs> kind of controlled on that end. So, like, there are some really good parts about it. Uh, it is kind of weird, in my opinion, uh, for Netflix to do it. But I can see them trying to branch out to, like, mobile game, which is, like, a really big market, and try to get more customers using that one. Yeah, I mean, the mobile uh, market is huge. It's it's arguably the biggest market for games. Um, I don't know, man. I, I mean, cool. You got Grand Theft Auto 3, San Andreas on your phone but i mean dude i played those on console when they came out back on the ps2 and shit you know like i'm i'm not gonna sit here and play gta 3 on my phone when i got a ps5 and monster hunter world sitting right behind me ready to go you know what i mean like true that, true that. you can I, use the bluetooth controller for it but i understand there's no big appeal for that yeah i mean i guess if you're giving little tommy you know your phone for something to do he can kill a couple hookers and get paid so why not you're talking about the game right yeah yeah not we'll go with that. yeah okay. we'll go with that <laughs> yeah i mean you know I'll, I'll say this like uh it's an interesting place to kind of go into for gta games uh it will be interesting to see where what other games they venture into this is they're basically zelda 
um, you know, Breath of the Wild kind of scenario. Instead, Nintendo Switch releasing a really good game. Netflix is releasing a, you know, used kind of a GTA franchise that has been beaten and bruised into a mobile phone. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see if they try to break into the mobile market. Yeah, it's not too bad. I played uh, an emulator, a Nintendo DS emulator, not on Nintendo DS, but Nintendo SD emulator with Pokemon Emerald on my phone. Nintendo didn't hear that, though. <laughs> <laughs> nobody hears this yeah don't worry about it <laughs> but you know it was just and then literally i went ahead and bought the game that came out a couple of years ago of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know right <laughs> and then i gave my money to the nintendo people and everything. Yeah. i went to the headquarter dropped the money bag right there <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, well it was a lot of fun experience when i did that so like playing a video game on like you know cell phone not just your regular mobile game, but something bigger. It'd be pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is too, if if I want to play a mobile game or a, a game that's portable, yeah, you know, I I got a Switch, man. I mean, granted, you know, GTA is not on it, but I got Monster Hunter Rise. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got a I got a Steam Deck. Guess what? Got a whole Steam library. Yeah, but like it's not like you know you can put that Nintendo DS inside your pocket while you're waiting for your drug test result or something like that. I mean, I could. My <laughs> pockets are big enough. Uh, yeah, you still wear those Jinkos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My hoodies. Yeah, let's move on to the last, but uh, kind of a sad news. Yeah, uh, James McCaffrey, who has voiced Max Payne from one through the three, he passed away pretty recently at the age of I think like somewhere somewhere around his sixties. A lot of good people this week, you know, passing away at the age 60, especially good people that you really don't want to, you know, don't, don't want to lose. It's never the ones that you really want dead who die, you know. It's always the ones you kind of know you're going to miss. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so people, if people don't know, uh, James McCaffrey, he did the voice of Max Payne. Um, he was Max Payne, right? Except for the face. Um and he was also a character very similar in Alan Wake 2, which we know that just kind of came out. So um, not just him, though. Uh, Andre Brogger? Bauer? Yeah. Yeah. He, he passed away, too, just like, like last week or something. Like you said, it's the ones that you don't want to see, right? Yeah. Andre, Andre Bauer, he uh, he was uh, played the Captain Holt on the uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yep. Uh, and he's the best character in that entire, you know, yeah, uh, is because his line deliveries, it's monotone, but it is so funny no matter what he says. Yeah. And Underbar, he's had a really good career too. He, he My first movie with Underbar was the, uh, you remember that movie, uh, Glory? No. It's the one with Denzel Washington and Matthew Broderick. Uh, Back in 89? Yeah, yeah, but like it was a really big movie because every high school played that movie during American history class. Yeah, I probably seen it. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, he that was his first movie, and he was he plays this kind of a um, a little bit of a meek person joining an army. He like Glory is a story about a, a first black regiment during the Civil War era that was being built and it was being led by a white man, and Andre Barr kind of plays the right hand man to that. Uh, Captain. It's a really good movie. There's one scene where like, and Denzel Washington is in it too. It's one of his first movies too. And in that one, like there's this one scene where like Denzel Washington is being whipped in front of everybody else. And it's so powerful from every actor in that. It's just, it gets you when you watch that movie. It's such a good movie to watch. 
And that was like a lot of the articles that was talking about Andre Barr. I didn't notice any of them mentioning that he played that character. That was the craziest part too. I was like, that's his, one of his best roles, his first role in movie and nobody talks about it. Well, I think just because Brooklyn Nine-Nine is just so like, it's, yeah, it's huge, you know. Not to take away from uh, Jeff McCaffrey but by, by, or James McCaffrey by any means. Yeah, exactly. We shouldn't be overshadowing the guy we started the article with. Yeah. Jeff McCaffrey was also in uh, one show that I used to watch, The Rescue Me. He was like a pretty major character in that one. He was in uh, a lot of stuff. I, I just, he was in Control, apparently, which is a really good game. Um, yeah, I love you played that one alone yeah. in the I mean, dark as well. Yeah, it's, this is also unfortunate because they're trying to remake the game, not remake, but like re, like you know, uh, create more Max Payne games in the future, and we just lost the voice of Max Payne. Like Remedy is trying to make more Max Payne games as well. I know they stopped it right at the uh, Max Payne three, which was a really good game when I played it. I remember absolutely enjoying that one, and. I was always surprised that they never followed up that game with anything else. That was like with, I think that one was with like Rockstar. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, but like, yeah, it was kind of, uh, like, and I was hoping, like, and it was unfortunate that, you know, they're trying to do more Max Payne stuff and they lost Max Payne himself. Uh, that's kind of unfortunate in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I'll add this, like, James McGaffrey, I remember when I played the first Max Payne game, that's when I was like, oh, the game developers are not the only people who can voice a character. <laughs> you can voice a character with a actual trained actor who knows how to deliver lines. That's amazing. That like, that story, that's why like, a lot of people still remember that story so well is because there's so many part of like, you know, Max Payne's character that you get to kind of experience, not just his weird, creepy face. <laughs> I... The first Max Payne was really good. I remember playing it when it first came out, and it has not really aged all that great, I will say that, <laughs> considering I think it came out for, like, PS2 or some shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, I'll, I'll give you that. It is a very uh, old game. It got a lot of cringy part. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it is super fun, and it's super unfortunate to hear he passed yeah. away. So. Yeah. Yep. Good night, sweet prince. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, move on to our next section. Segment. Segment. Yep, that's the word. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to our next segment. Next segment. <laughs> you, to use, you want me to use that as the uh, <laughs> transition uh, song? Uh, uh, probably not. But if you wanted to, go ahead. It's fine. I will not. I will not. I cannot afford the copyright for that one. <laughs> Oh, Ian, I played one of the most wonderful games that I've ever played. I played the Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. The most, in my opinion, quite above average game. That's how I would describe this game. Above average? I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad at all. I think, like, you know, uh, I know I'm the only one who played in this one and you haven't played this game yet. Sure not. So, you know, I'll take the lead on, like, kind of talking about this game and stuff like that. And you can... Ask me with any questions you might have or curiosity about this game. With your with your all-knowing wisdom of the, <laughs> the Avatar franchise. Exactly. Yeah. Full disclosure, right? I love this world, man. I love the Avatar world that James Cameron built for us. It's a amazing world, in my opinion. Definitely an underrated as a franchise, even though it has two 
like, you know, above $2 billion grossing movies in there. People still don't care to remember this movie very much. And I think when the next Avatar movie comes out, that's going to make another $2 billion and people are going to forget about it <laughs> after a couple of weeks immediately too. Yeah, that's the, that's the one that's going to put it on everyone's radar and then immediately disappear. Yeah. So this game, right, Frontiers of Pandora, it takes place in that same universe as the James Cameron movies do. From the timeline perspective, this takes place, uh, the beginning, the first part of the game takes place in the same time as the Battle of Hallelujah Mountain, which is the final battle in the Avatar 2009 movie. And there is a time jump that happens immediately, and then it starts one year before the events of Avatar The Way of the Water. So that's the timeline it occurs in. So basically smack dab in between both of them. Exactly, right at the extreme end of both of them too. So like, it's right after the first movie and it's right before the uh, second movie. So there's like a uh, kind of a frozen cryogenic section where like, you know, they get frozen for a while and then they grow up, they get out like 15 years later. So first of all, let me ask you, who do you play as? Because you're not a human, right? We are not a human being. We are a Na'vi. We're a character. Well, let me put it this way. Our character grow up inside the human society. The human beings are organized by RDA in Pandora. They have found these four Na'vi children from extinct uh, clan, one of the extinct clan in Na'vi called Serantu. They took these children and then they put them through like their human school and stuff like that, teaching them about human stuff so that one day they would grow up to be allies of human beings. Now, this is kind of mirroring those scenarios where like a lot of Native Americans' children were taken and put in, into kind of a Catholic school and then forced to assimilate. But so that's the scenario where it's happening. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where do we get into this? No, no, that's that's exactly what the uh, it's the mirror effect is. So they're trying to kind of indoctrinate these Navi children into becoming human allies in the game. That's how they grow up in. They're trying to tell them not to follow the Navi customs and uh, Navi way of life. They're trying to teach them all human beings. And there are four children who grew up under that circumstances. And the story of this movie, not movie, sorry, story of this game is about those children trying to get out of that indoctrination and find their Navi by exploring their section of Pandora, which takes place in the western frontier of Pandora. So basically, just trying to like get back to their their native roots, more or less, yeah. Exactly. And the story takes, you know, a lot of kind of turns. It's mainly focused on one character, you, which you create in a character creation summary. Like in a character creation menu, you kind of develop your own, how the face structure and everything else, which doesn't really matter because you're all playing in first person anyway. So I always find it weird that they try to make you a character that they force you to make a character that you can't even see most of the time. But you're kind of like, you know, playing a maid character. You have a sibling growing up with you as well. And the story starts from a scenario where like your sibling gets killed uh, because they try to run away from the human beings camp. And the main villain, Mercer, who is a big RDA executive, business guy, he decides to uh, kind of retaliate by killing one of them. And then later on, like, you know, these uh, Navi children, they run down the road, they do escape from that uh, RDA and they find their way into the Pandora 
And then there they have to interact with other Navi and other human beings who are fighting against the RDA's influence in Pandora, trying to protect Pandora. And then they have to learn how to become a Navi from that experience. Sounds pretty convoluted, not going to lie. A lot of moving parts, it sounds like. It's also because I'm kind of explaining in a very... I don't know if I'm explaining it right or not. It's it's quite simple, the premise. Like, you know, it allows you to be foreign, be a Navi, but at the same time be completely new and experience with the character what Pandora is. Yeah. I, I got to say, from what I, I have seen of it, Pandora looks beautiful. Yeah, it, it definitely does. They're using a game engine called Snowdrop. And this game engine is looks like it's very good at interacting with lights and uh, how the light simulation works in this game. Like there are a lot of bioluminescent aspect of how this world works. That is like, you know, lighting from almost every corner, from every wazoo and hole, there's like a light or something coming up in the night. And it's it looks absolutely fantastic. The I mean, you cannot compare it to the movie, which looks way, way better. But this one as a game, in my opinion, it runs pretty smoothly and it, looks really really gorgeous like the sound the world what you see what you hear it is really really kind of a comprehensive in my opinion really well built world and you can kind of get lost exploring it very well yeah i feel like because i know a lot of people were saying it's kind of like a far cry reskin or whatever but the one thing that they always did well was having a large area for you to explore yeah, and this one provides the same luxury as well. And in fact, in my opinion, they also allow you through their gameplay to explore it a lot easier too. So like the exploration is not as tedious. Uh, the way you do the exploration, you don't have to depend upon, you know, climbing a tower and unlocking an area. There's a fog of war kind of situation where later on you receive a flying ikran pretty soon early in the game too. So you receive this thing and then you are immediately able to kind of explore a huge part of Pandora. And every dimension you look at in Pandora, up, down, you know, it looks the ground or the sky. It looks amazing in every single one of them. And it's definitely one of the better looking games this year. Yeah, at least it does, it does look really good. Um, and I've seen a lot of people saying that uh, one of their favorite things is kind of traversing with the uh, the flying mount. They say that's just... it's really good movement and really fun to explore with it just kind of soaring through the skies and stuff so yeah yeah i mean talking about experience the game itself right i'll yeah. talk a little bit more about the mount as we kind of explore uh but let's talk about how the overall gameplay actually is first and then we'll dwell into the story area like the gameplay wise i'll first tackle one of the things that i actually did not like in the game is how you play, how you move as a character. Mm. The way the Navi characters are designed is that you're supposed to be very, and I think this might have been their original intention too, but you are supposed to be very agile and almost parkour-like through the traversing, like, you know, trees or rocks when you're traversing these areas. You need to be more flexible and very fast in the movements as you are kind of running around. But in this one, when you sprint, it doesn't even feel like you're sprinting. The movements are kind of clunky. It's a little bit mm-hmm. heavy when you're trying to move. You do not feel like you're nimble on your feet. And sometimes you don't know whether you're going to be able to climb a certain section or not. That's like really hard to, kind of, not really hard, but like it's kind of bothersome when you 
try to climb over a rock and you realize, oh, I cannot climb over this rock. I'm going to have to get my mount to climb over a rock and then land on the mount, which alone, like in a landing is also kind of not as accurate where it lands and stuff like that. So movements is a little bit clunky on that end. So it's not like you're able to free climb everything then or or no vaulting system really? No, it, there is like, and you can jump up a mushroom or something if you want to call that a vault, <laughs> but it's <laughs> yeah, I like a bouncy mushroom you can jump on it. That's not really a vaulting. Yeah, right? nah. But what I mean is that, you know, your I think their original design is supposed to be a Navi who can kind of freely climb really fast through the trees and the rocks and, then, you know, jump around really fast. But when I'm trying to climb through it, it is a ledge-based climbing. I cannot climb every tree. I have to see if the tree has giant mushroom coming out of its bark and then be able mm. to climb that. If I see a rock, I cannot climb it unless, like, it, there, there's a visual cue to understand if I can climb that rock or not. It's kind of like a crapshoot whether I'll be able to climb this rock or not. When it when you do climb, it's pretty fast, but you don't know whether this particular, you know, hill can be climbed with just a bare hand or not, yeah. or bare leg. Or when you're swimming, it's like you can't do, you don't have a distinct fast versus medium versus slow movement either. Like it's, you're walking, but like, you know, you, you're you sprinting, but it doesn't feel like a sprint at all. Even though you're 10 foot tall with like a marathon level legs, it doesn't feel like you're running very fast. And it doesn't feel like you're, when you're sneaking, you're 10 foot tall with the marathon legs, you can't really sneak very well either. It doesn't have like those, you know, in Assassin's Creed where like, or in Far Cry where like, you know, if you are hiding between the leaves here, you will be like, you know, safe from the sneak. Yeah. Like the screen kind of goes a little bit darker and like you got kind of a, a light source there. Yep. Like a visual cue to tell you that you are successfully sneaking. You don't really have that on that end. So it kind of makes like, you know, either we want to do sneak or a fast gameplay. It's kind of hard to do. One of the areas that I can kind of like specify when it comes to movements or the lack of, you know, smooth movement is, you know, sometimes in some gameplay, like you kind of develop a style where you're very fast moving through the area or a section and you're sliding and running and jumping using melee and using a gun to kind of do a very fast kind of attack and respond and hide, attack and respond and hide. Do you know the kind of gameplay I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Dying Light had something similar to that. Exactly. So that's basically right. So this game has some of the comp components to allow you to do that, but then it also has the components that slows you down when they do that. So if I'm trying to run and then slide, I have to use the same button as the uh, crouch button. So after I'm done sliding, when I'm done with the slide, I'm in a crouch position, in a slow moving kind of position. Yeah. So like I'm running towards an enemy, I slide and then or like, you know, I'm running to the enemy. I shoot the enemy while running and try to slide, but I want to get up and start running again immediately. It's not really easy to transition that very smoothly. Yeah, you got to take a second to like get your character to stand back up and then start running again. And you get killed really, really fast. Like in this one, if you are not fast enough and you're getting shot from multiple directions, you get killed kind of fast. So even on an easy mode, that's where I was playing. So like, I'm trying to develop a style where I'm moving fast around, like, you know, confusing kind of a little bit and then trying to use my speed over their armor but it's really hard to do that it has some mechanism to allow you to do that but not enough to pull that off successfully every single time yeah so like a clunky movement on that end yeah 
And the flying part, it's actually very smooth when you fly though. It's like, you know, you're, when you sprint or do a jet fast flying, it's noticeable. So there's a visual cue if you're flying really fast on that end. So like, you know, that's the thing. It's like they're trying to condense a couple of things or like it's working in some areas for movement, but it's not working on the another area. So it's not like 100% bad or 100%, you know, good. It's just like in some areas, the movement is kind of missing it. In some areas, they're hitting the mark with it. Yeah, so it sounds like kind of like when you're walking as your character, you have two speeds, slow and slower. Yeah, basically, like <laughs> we, we're trying to say it's a sprint. Like technically on the options, it's saying sprint. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like you're fast at all. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're actually sprinting. Like you have six foot long legs or something. You still don't look like you're running really fast on that end. Yeah. Or like it, you're not running as fast as your six foot legs would take you. Exactly. That's that's and it's very noticeable when you're trying to develop. Uh, so like if you try to sneak around in this gameplay, it will take a long time to do it. If you're trying to go gung ho blazing, you know there's a risk to it from getting shot really fast. But if you're trying to do a speed gung ho, then it has some mechanisms to allow you to do it, but not good enough that you can pull it off successfully every single time. Yeah, it's a little janky. Exactly. That's the right word. It's a little bit janky considering you're 10 foot tall with like long legs. You should be less janky, more nimble, you know? Well, I mean, so overall, I mean, it's not terrible though. No, I mean, movement is fine. The good part from like in a gameplay perspective, it's the uh, weapons and how you fight, like, you know, using the weapons are pretty cool. Like, you get to develop either the bow and arrow and Navi style, like, you know, primitive kind of weapon, or you can use the human weapons of guns and shotgun and an assault rifle. And in this game, it doesn't punish you too much for, like, using one or the either. But if you're hunting, you want to use the bow and arrow so that you get the best kind of meat. If you use gun to hunt, you ruin the meat and everything else, so you cannot really extract any ingredients or crafting materials out of animals on that end. But like, if you're using bow and arrow, it's actually pretty good because like it is very forgiving with the accuracy you need to be. So as long as your, you know, your aim uh, assist is close enough, you will hit the mark. Yeah, like, you don't have to be exactly perfect, which I really like. Um, how is like the bow compared to using like the assault rifle, like? Do you get upgraded bows where then like your bow kind of outclasses it or is it just funner to use the assault rifle? So on the bows, you do get to craft really good, like exquisite kind of material used and make it really powerful. You have three kinds of bow as well. You have a normal long bow. You have a short bow, which is like very fast draw and fire. So that's good for like your close quarter combat. And then you have a heavy bow, which is good for like a long uh, range attack from distant, but you have to have a long draw strength and long draw time to use it. Yeah. So that's the three bows you get. Uh, Along with it from Navi weapon, you also get a spear thrower, which is powerful, but not very good range. Uh, And then you also get a, (laughs) what looks like a lacrosse bat. (laughs) Basically, it has like a bomb in there and you can throw the bomb using the lacrosse bat. Fucking. <laughs> that one is one of my favorite weapons. I'll tell you that. Yeah. But like, 
so if you're doing a sneak kind of stuff, you want to use bow. If you're doing gung-ho, go in there, kill everything, you want to use assault rifle. Or even better, you want to use a really good shotgun. Uh, shotguns, in my opinion, I'm not usually a shotgun kind of person when playing these games, but in this one, I was definitely using the shotgun a lot more than the assault rifle. So on that, on the question that you asked, which one's better, if you are focusing on crafting, trying to find right ingredients and stuff like that, you can definitely try to uh, go towards the bow kind of side and try to develop the best bow designs that you can get from people and try to make your own bow using those designs. Or you can just, you know, get the guns from RDA camps or stuff like that, or like their area base and st- uh, their area or their base. You can get guns from there and then use that as well. Anytime you kill an enemy, you either get like in a bullet or if you want more arrows, you can just kind of harvest it from the plants. So it's very, very uh, forgiving, whichever you want to use, mm. uh, depending upon your game style. So if you want to sneak around, use the bow. If you want to go gung-ho, go for the guns. So for like sneaking around and stuff though, right? So usually like how I would do it is I'd take like an opener with the bow, probably do like the heavy drawstring, hit him from afar a couple of times. Are you able to reposition yourself to like kind of drop out of sight again? Or is it like once the enemies see you, they pretty much just have your numbers, so you just might as well go all out? There is a problem in that, and the latter is kind of a problem. Like once they discover you, them going back to kind of like, no, some guy died, but we're just (laughs) going to ignore it, (laughs) something like that, that kind of scenario, it doesn't happen very fast enough. Like once they identify where you are, it's really hard to hide from them and go back into the sneak. So oftentimes, like when you use the bow, they will notice the dead body. They kind of raise the alarm. They might not notice you, but if they are in a search mode, then they are highly likely to find you. Now, as I said, you don't have a visual cue to know that you're safely, you know, in a sneak mode and hiding from everybody. You don't really know that if you're when you're hiding. So usually that kind of doesn't help you with like, you know, whether you're successfully sneaking or not. That's, that's one complaint. Like once they find you, your, uh, your second, um, description was correct. Like once they find you, it's really hard to shake them off completely, which ruins your sneak gameplay. Every time I try to invade an area, I start just as you said with the uh, heavy bow from the distance. Yeah. And then they find me out and then I go gung ho sliding around trying to shoot everything. <laughs> and then get it done. Yeah. Sometimes you can sneak around and there are some bases where you can sneak and not kill anybody and just destroy the base like a big one. You get a lot more reward for doing that. Yeah. They maybe we're starting to put that in I think like the third one or the fourth one or something like that. Where like if you take out the base completely stealthily, you get like extra bonus rewards or whatever. So it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and in this one, like taking over a base is a lot more easier, in my opinion. You just have to do a couple of like, you know, pulling the switch and you can be successful at it. I did this one base completely sneakily, like, you know, did everything like in a sneak manner. They didn't even notice anything, uh, but it was really hard to do because it was a pretty big base. But once I managed to do it, and it was a base at quite a level higher than I was. So I received this shotgun with like 280 damage when I'm like level seven. It was like an OP kind of a weapon too. I was running around just shooting the amps, the mech, mech uh, people in like one bullet because of that gun later on. That gun, I did not change my shotgun after I got that one. And even in the later in the game, when I started getting a shotgun, it was not as good as the 280 uh, hit point damage uh, shotgun that I had. 
it was just it was amazing to kind of get that. It was like felt so rewarding to get it because I did one base so well yeah. that it helped get to give this reward, and I felt really really happy about it. Yeah, the fighting is fun. It it is not as like you know when it comes to bow and arrow, it's not going to punish you for using it. As in like you have to be absolutely accurate to hit the target in your you know line of sight or something like that. It it is quite forgiving, especially when you play in a uh, easy mode. Yeah, so you can stick around with the bow quite a bit. Yeah, that's why I like using shotguns because you don't really have to aim too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this one has a scatter shot effect for the shotgun. Uh, so you want to be close enough to kill them, mm. especially the uh, enemies that are human beings. You want to use gun for the human beings. It won't punish you for it. But if you use guns on the animals, uh, you do not get any kind of ingredient out of it. Yeah. And speaking of ingredient, uh, I'll touch last part of the gameplay is the crafting and cooking portion. Yeah. So the crafting, the way they have kind of allowed you to find the ingredients, find exquisite level of ingredients, the high quality level, and how you collect it by being gentle with the environment. By you know, you can get a really good material if you kill an animal in a sneaky and a clean and a merciful kill, then you get a really high quality material from it. If you use a gun to kill an animal, you're not going to get anything out of it. So by interacting with the world in a more delicate and more gentle manner, you get to extract like a high quality of that particular ingredient. So you can collect fruits, you can collect, you know, roots or crafting materials, cooking materials and stuff like that. And how you interact with the world by being gentle, by being a Navi, who, which respects the world around it, it allows you to get the best quality kind of ingredients on that caliber. And you can use it to craft your weapons, craft your armors and stuff. And you can use it to also cook food. Which is, in my opinion, like usually I don't really like that kind of mechanism, but in this one, it was enjoyable because you can combine any two ingredients. Like you don't need a specific recipe. You can basically choose a meat and a fruit. And if the fruit has a certain kind of buff and meat has a certain kind of buff, it combines those two. And then you get a food that gives you kind of a combination of those buffs. So when you say buff, do you mean like like a health buff, damage buff sort of deal or... That is that is what I'm talking about. So okay. like if a fruit uh, gives you like a sneak buff and the meat gives you longer duration buff, you combine those food, then you get a longer sneak duration kind of food. Got and it. you can take that with you. And in this one, like you have to like, you know, at first when you're doing some fast traveling, you have this energy bar, which needs to be full. If your energy bar is kind of satisfied and full, then you can recover from your health injuries. Uh, much more easier but if your energy is low then your recovery is a lot lot harder to do so you want to be continuously cooking the food and eating it and it's not as chores like and it's not as a chore as i'm trying to uh yeah. maybe interpret it but it's actually quite fun to put those ingredients in and see what you get out of it and then take that with you as you travel you can use those ingredients to feed your ikran as well and then kind of like you know get its energy up too so the crafting and cooking is actually not as complicated. The po- like basically, you know, your potion making uh, that you do in a lot of like Witcher and stuff like that. Yeah. You can combine any ingredients together. Basically, you whatever ingredients you have, combine them. Understand their status effect, and then you might get something that has a pretty good status effect. And if you're careful with the environment when you're trying to extract the fruit or the milk or the meat, then you get a really high quality of buff from those ingredients just last longer and stuff i'm assuming it's probably like 
like you said, it's not tedious. So it's, it's probably pretty consistent that you run into this shit. It's just kind of all over the place. So you don't really have to look too far for anything. Not at all. Yeah. You can find like, you know, basically it also allows what, it, what they have is called, wait, they have this hunter's guide section of their UI where you can kind of find all these ingredients and you don't have to find the ingredients to get that directory either. You just have to encounter something where you, you have to craft it. Then that becomes part of the directory. And that directory allows you to tell you what part of the biome, with mm. which area this is located. And if you want to find a rarer or an exic- like exquisite version of that ingredient, like a high quality of that ingredient, it will specifically tell you where you can look at to kind of find those two. That's nice. It's always good when a game like incorporates that. So that way you can find ingredients again uh, easier. I hate when I'm trying to sit there and guess on where I pick something up. So that's good exactly. here at least. That's the good part about it. And as you know, people were saying that this thing is kind of a condensed Far Cry kind of game. Yes, it is true. But it also took a couple of the annoying part about the open world exploration and then condensed it a little bit more so that when you do have to do this Far Cry-like stuff, you're not going to be wasting too much time on it. Like, you'll be able to do these quite fast and in a much more easier manner. Yeah, it sounds like they, they kind of simplified the uh, Far Cry formula a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable. Yeah. Now, we can talk about whether some of them were successful or some of them were not as successful. That is, of, of course, up for debate. There are some sections that worked out and some sections that did not. One of the sections that did not work out, in my opinion, is how the story went. Like, the story that I'm kind of, we already talked about a little bit of summary on the beginning, like how it starts. But unlike Far Cry, we don't have a very good antagonist. The antagonist in this game is, um, like, he tries to be the most evil motherfucker in the world. Yeah. But like, you know, he's like this corporate executive kind of guy who runs the RDA, the human institution the villain institution. And it's not as like, you know, memorable or as strong of an antagonist that you'll see in, you know, Far Cry 3 with Boss or Far Cry 4 has Pagan Min, Far Cry, uh, you know, 5 has that uh, guy from Wisconsin or something. Or <laughs> and then uh, Far Cry 6 has the Giancarlo Esposito being the Spanish dictator or Gus Fring in a different world, I guess. So, okay, so here's my question on that, right? Now, I saw that with Avatar, uh, Frontier, Pandora, whatever the fuck it is, um, they said that you're the antagonists there, you don't really see them a lot in person. Like, most of what you get from them is just from, like, video files and stuff. Now, do you feel it's more impactful from the Far Cry games where you're having interactions with, like, say, Far Cry 3 with Voss or something like that? Definitely. There should be a lot more interaction between the main villain and the main character. There isn't a lot at all. Like you meet him in the beginning of the games and then he just is completely gone. He's only around as what he has affected the world around him. Like, you know, how he has corrupted Pandora. He is much more present in the effect that he has left behind rather than as a character itself. Yeah. And the character we play is like part of a four, like, you know, Navis who have been so impacted by this guy from their childhood, but the amount of interaction we get from between these characters and uh, Mercer, the main antagonist, 
it's not enough for us to give us a satisfying conclusion when the comeuppance comes up, you know? Yeah. Like when the even when you only see them directly when like the final once, maybe in the middle of the game, that you see it, but for like less than a minute. And then you hear them talk to you once in a while, and then you'll have a final uh, mission. And, and in that one, the I'll say this, the conclusion of how the story left is so up in the air that it didn't feel like a conclusion at all. Mm. Because here's spoiler alert, right? And I, I mean, this is a video game. Like, you know, don't yeah. worry about spoilers and video games. Just go play the game, right? But by the time you play this game, like in you know, a couple of years later, you know, discount, yeah, or maybe you know, your game pass after you watched your 15 minute ad or something, <laughs> uh, you'll be able to uh, kind of like you know already forgotten. But Mercer kind of dies off screen. Oh, really? That's like and lame as shit. It is lame. It is very, very lame. The payout is not worth it at all, it sounds like, man. It is. Yeah, it is not. After all this shit that this guy's done, I was hoping to screw my spear through this guy's head. Didn't you say he he killed your your sibling too? Yeah, my sister. (laughs) (laughs) And then when we're talking about the story, the death of that sister is not as impactful. I (laughs) just kind of remember her, but... Yeah, I even forgot that she was killed in the (laughs) beginning. And And when he talked about my sister, oh, yeah. You killed her. I'm going to kill you. And I don't even get to kill you. It's just, uh, they don't give you that satisfaction. They don't give you the exact satisfaction. But the story part where you are kind of like, you know, exploring Pandora, meeting other clans, other characters who are Navi, and some human characters who have decided to ally with you, uh, those are kind of a fun interaction. And they kind of make up for the lack of the interaction between the main guy, the main uh, character and the... Um, main villain but it's not as strong as you would have with Voss or mm. with pagan men that's the kind of a missing on that end yeah yeah because they have like a certain kind of likability to them as well oh yeah like batshit insane kind of like you know likability i guess with a bunch of psychopaths and killers but they have such a strong presence in the game because of those unique characteristics this guy was just a you know your corporate suit <laughs> who like instead of trying to uh, like you know scream at his secretary, decides to kill your sister instead, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and you know your regular senior executive, vice president kind of guy, off-world businessman here to do business. Yeah, it's <laughs> basically this guy is what like you know an American psycho businessman. If he goes to Pandora, is going to turn out to be <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, like there's not enough interaction for the payoff at the final mission to be satisfactory. And later on, one of the four, like, you know, people that you grew up with, the four Navis, one of them disappears after two-thirds of the game and then is not anywhere in the last third. And the final conclusion, we still don't meet him. Like, where the fuck did he go? Like, this guy, this guy was like somebody who was getting pissed off with the human beings and he was really going into murderous kind of route. And it was kind of like an interesting story. You can kind of watch it. But yeah, you're like, where where did you go, Nor? That's his name. Like, Nor, like, did we forget this guy exists? Like, later on, when they did that conclusive, like, you know, hey, let's hug around and start a new chapter. What the fuck is that fourth guy that we grew up with? They didn't even talk about it. Nah, you said, fuck this game. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That guy, that character, that Navi literally was like, I fuck this and left. But I think they're probably trying to save it for like a DLC, maybe, because mm-hmm. Mercer dies off screen. You don't really see it. And Nor is like somebody who really wants to take out his vengeance on human being a little bit. He's going to kind of become that kind of character, it feels like. 
so it might be a DLC maybe coming back. And I would definitely be interested in playing it considering if it's a decent enough price and everything. So I might be willing to check it out. I hope that part of the Far Cry clone is there. You know, your crazy, uh, uh, your crazy DLC kind of thing. Blood Dragon, Pandora. Exactly. Oh, hell yeah. I would, I would totally be into it. But that's the thing. It's like, you know, the plot has these emotional beats that you'd see in every game, nothing new. And the gameplay has to take you through plot points. Like, you know, oh, this is the betrayal part. This is the trauma part. This is the uh, kind of like, you know, finding out who you really are and how your f- clan was treated and killed by the main guy part. Spoiler alert again. <laughs> I should have maybe said that beforehand. But yeah, so like you're trying to discover as you do, there's like emotional beat to it. You flying your first Ikran. There's some like highly good emotional plot points that your gameplay takes you through, that your plot takes you through. And then there are some really like kind of a cheesy kind of, oh, you've already seen this story trope kind of plot points as well. Again, like, you know, a character who the moment he opened his mouth, I knew for a fact this guy's going to betray the shit out of me. Like he's going to betray us all. I can tell it. Like, and then later on, like, you know, the character goes, I did not see that coming. I could not expect him to do that. I'm like, you did not really, you didn't hear him. Like how he was talking about, you know, maybe you should be better with Mercer and RDA rather than with the Navi. You didn't hear him when he said that, like, for no reason, you didn't think he was going to betray you. Like, this is so telegraphed. How did you not notice it? It's a little too much on the spoon feeding because it sounds like it. It kind, it's not too much. There are some areas where when it happens, you're like, oh, come on, man. Like, it's, this is such an obvious plot point. You should probably pay attention or something like that. It's kind of like a, a story trope, you know, your own brother betraying you kind of story trope or uh, a character takes a darker turn or like a character manages to, uh, prove themselves to be a real Navi kind of character, mm. trope, those kind of thing, you know. There's a lot of those and you'll see it coming at like miles ahead. It's kind of like what it did with a couple of Far Cry gameplay and condensed it and made it simplified, as yeah. you said. That's exactly what it did to a couple of the plot points and simplified and tried to take you through those emotional ups and downs. And which is like, you know, nothing novel into it, but it's not truly bad. But there's nothing really new to look at from the story-wise perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like you said, I think uh, once it goes on some discount or something like that, I think I'll try and pick it up and stuff. Um, who knows, maybe I'll iron some of it out since, you know, until then or whatever. It's still good to play right now, I would say, like, but yeah, if you want to save your money, save your money, man. I mean, like, later on down the road, if you're like, uh, I don't know what game to play, maybe I'll play a game. Well, I'll check out this Pandora kind of stuff. I'll install the Ubisoft Uplay <laughs> on my <laughs> like you know, PC and then play it or something like that. Definitely, this is the game you want to play in PC. Even though the game engine looks pretty good on Xbox, the ones that I've checked out from gameplay from Xbox, they look pretty good too. The PC definitely looks really, really freaking beautiful. Uh, it, this game, you know, I've always loved this world and always kind of like, you know, it's really nice to be part of that world in a sense, like when you're playing through it, like the sound, design, all the little music not all the music as well the navi music the language kind of a that is surrounding you in this game it really makes you feel like you know oh this is really deep kind of a world to be in it's a and it has many different kinds of biomes that you go through or different area like one area is like a thick jungle one area is like open field plain and one area is the kind of a swampy kind of like you know a little bit more heavy fog ridden kind of stuff 
Yeah, Ubisoft is usually they're pretty good when it comes to uh, their world building and stuff. So I'm not surprised with how well it looks. Definitely, it's the game engine. Definitely, in my opinion, hope to see more of it down the road. Like how it works with the lighting, it's quite impressive to check it out. It's 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 a really nice kind of game to kind of play. You don't have to expect too much out of this game, and it's not going to let you down too much when you play it. <laughs> it's like I like <laughs> much I like that. Yeah, because yeah. like you'll see a couple of these parts being, oh man, this is so telegraphed. It is frustrating, but you can kind of learn to adjust to it as you play it. It's fine. And one of my weakness whenever I play this kind of game is that how easily I get distracted by the side quest. That mm-hmm. means like some of the side quests are pretty, pretty decent to kind of play. It's not like all the frustrating fetch quest all the time kind of thing. Yeah. It has a little bit like, you know, uh, it helps you kind of impact the world around you, which uh, is pretty good. Like, especially when you do those, uh, like the, the uh, base clearance mission, the like, you know, taking over a headquarter and etc. you really feel like you're improving the Pandora world itself, making it less polluted and less dirty. And it kind of shows on the gameplay as well. So like, uh, you're kind of helping this world and makes you feel a little bit like, wow, I'm impacting this world as I'm playing. It's like, that's what I want to see from like a side missions and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Does does it like, does it do that thing where it like instantly makes the area nicer or does it happen over time? Instantly, <laughs> but it's not like, you know, a perfect repair. This is still parts of the old kind of scraps and stuff like that left around, mm. but you are able to extract ingredients in that area when it's not polluted anymore. So like, it's kind of like, it's not a perfect uh, repair. It looks like in the middle of the repair kind of thing. Yeah, I got you. No, I mean, it yeah. was really good. I mean, Ubisoft's, like I said, really good with their world building and stuff. So, I mean, as long as, in my opinion, too, like the gunplay is good, which I mean, I like all the gunplay in the Far Cry games. I us- think they're usually pretty well, and they did a really good job with the uh, bow in uh, Primal. So I don't really see them struggling too much in that department, honestly. Yeah, I'd give this game a good, like a solid B, like no B plus or B minus, like a good solid B as a game. Uh it is definitely something you can sink your hours a little bit into, or you can go through this game really, really fast and finish the story and everything. Yeah. Oh, sounds good, man. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, it's always good to hear positive things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to forget about this game next by next week. <laughs> I'll be honest. The, yeah. The plot is not as memorable. So uh, maybe I'll be able to play it again or something. But yeah. Definitely, I would definitely recommend it. Play it when you have nothing else kind of going on. Get it on a discount. You know, we'll see how my 2,000 hours in Monster Hunter World goes and if I'm looking at something else at that point, so. But Ian, do you want me to pivot this podcast to Monster Hunter? <laughs> Day-by-day review. Today I went and hunted a couple of monsters. You know, I fed my cat. My cat fed me. <laughs> Listen, man. I, I had to take on a couple of hefty monsters today, all right? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm not going to stop you from taking down these monsters any longer, so I appreciate you listening to me taking down my, you know, monster in Avatar <laughs> and monster, the real monster, that's true, are the human beings. Yeah. Am I the monster? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And by the way, I want to say this, like, you know, in this one, all like human beings are such bastards. There's no gray line for like human beings or anything. Human beings are bastard in this game. Like they're not gonna 
say like, oh, you know, when you watch like Captain Planet or like those kind of old environmental kind of uh, TV shows or like in a cartoon, they're like, oh, human beings, when we come together, we can do something good for our world. We can repair it. We should not lose hope. We should do our best. That kind of mentality. In this one, they're like, you human beings, you have completely destroyed your world. Now you come to our world and destroy that one too. You guys are bastards and you are... You are to be like speared through my, like it's speared through your head for that kind of thing. Like they're like really antagonist against human beings. And in this story, deservedly so as well. But yeah, it's like, no, no, we're not going to do some gray area here. Human beings, even the ones that are helping out Navi, they get kind of looked down upon by the story. Like uh, there's this one section where this one character says, ah, I really feel ashamed that I wish we as a human being just never came to Pandora and the main character goes, well, it's too late now. <laughs> but we can only do what we can do now. That's what the character says. Like, you're already here, dickhead. Fucking let's figure something out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like, it's like quite uh, antagonistic to human beings. And in my opinion, I think it's because we as a human beings are kind of fed up with our shit. So like, we're like, uh, now it's the time to repair is dying out. Now, you know, reap the consequences, my man, kind of thing going on. Fucking go to yeah. Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Destroy that planet too. Get your ass to Mars. Yeah. See, when Earth sends its people to Pandora in, it's not sending its best. Okay. It's sending its killers, its murderers, its senior executive vice presidents, <laughs> and the worst of them, geologists. Geologists. That's what they're sending. Fucking geologists. Yeah. Well, that's it for the game. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. Definitely recommend it. Uh, for you, if you don't want to play it right now, yeah, wait for your discount and play it when you can, when you uh, have time. I'll, I'll play it at some point, I feel like. I usually do play so- stuff like that, but... All right, man. I think that's about it, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we can conclude and wrap up our show as well. So if anybody, you know, you guys want to reach out to us, you can reach out at highpinkbastards at gmail.com and uh, in. Again, thank you for listening to my uh, sermon about Avatar. <laughs> you know, this is a game that I really liked. I hope one day you'll get to enjoy it as well. Yeah, man, we'll get to it eventually once I'm done with Monster Hunter. So, you know, awesome. <laughs> but wait, but you'll never be done with that. I mean, bye, everybody. <laughs> bye bye.